Well, once again, good morning. Please open your Bible to the book of James, chapter 2. As you turn there, about seven years ago, our two oldest boys were four and two. And like many boys that age, they loved trains, loved everything to do with trains. So Julie and I thought it would be fun to take them on the train out of Williams that goes up to the Grand Canyon. So we told the boys we were going to be going on a train ride to the Grand Canyon, and we spent a lot of time telling them about the Grand Canyon. It's a giant hole in the ground. It's beautiful, and uh, told them how tremendously spectacular it was, breathtaking, uh, huge gorges, and beautiful scenery. So uh, we went out to Williams on a Friday, stayed in a hotel and that night, and the next morning we got up and we boarded the train. And that Saturday, it was a rainy, rainy day. And the train ride was very enjoyable. Lots of animals and nice scenery. Um, it, was, it was a fun trip. And we got up to the station at the Grand Canyon and all of the excitement, all of the anticipation, all of the buildup. And we were ready t- to realize it all, to see it all. And we approached the canyon. We walked up to the guardrail And to our surprise, the majestic Grand Canyon was completely filled with fog. We couldn't see 20 feet down into the canyon. And in that moment of expectation, of excitement, what all of us expected was crushed in a single moment by fog. At that point, we went into the gift shop, showed the boys books of the Grand Canyon, and told them that was what was outside. They looked at us like we were crazy. What we expected to experience that day was thwarted in a moment. We went that whole trip, train ride, expecting a majestic view only to walk to the edge and only see fog to see nothing of what we expected. The point is, a day is coming, Scripture tells us in Matthew 7, where a large amount of people are going to actually live their life with an expectation of what the end will look like of an expectation of what the end will look like when they stand before Jesus, expecting to run to him and to be embraced by him, only to hear on that day something very different than what they expected, which is, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. This is a sobering reality, and this morning James is going to put forth and defend the fact that genuine faith cannot be separated from works. That the Christian can have assurance of what they will see on the last day as they see their faith confirmed through works. Many on that last day will run up to Jesus wanting his embrace and will be told to depart. And the kindness of the Lord is that he has actually given us truth in his word so that we can know how to live in light of our faith so that we can know what to look for to have our faith affirmed to have our faith demonstrated publicly. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Read with me James 2, starting in verse 14, and we'll read through the end of the chapter through verse 26. James says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. James defends the inseparable nature of genuine saving faith and works. James defends the inseparable nature of genuine saving faith and works. There is an inseparable nature between true faith in Jesus and what that faith produces in the believer's life. If you have genuine saving faith in Jesus, it will produce a newness of life that brings about the fruit of works or fruit that, that are pleasing to God. And James defends the inseparable nature of genuine saving faith and works. Now James does this with four defenses that could be put into two categories. Four defenses that could be separated into two different categories. The first two defenses deal with the nature of dead faith. That's the first category, the nature of dead faith. And he has two defenses that deal with that. And the second category expresses examples of genuine saving faith. That's the second category. Genuine examples of genuine saving faith. I have my outline up on the screen for you to see there. James's first two defenses center on the nature of dead faith, and the next two are the examples of living faith. So first, as we consider the nature of dead faith, we see this. Defense number one, an inactive faith reveals a dead faith. Uh, an inactive faith reveals a dead faith. Genuine saving faith is followed by good works. Thus, if you claim a faith that produces no change of life, that reveals a dead faith. An inactive faith reveals a dead faith, an imposter faith. There are some that claim to possess faith in Jesus Christ for eternal life. They claim to know Christ. In fact, frequently they believe they do. Yet even though this one says he has faith, the reality is there is no obedience in his life. He claims to know Christ, but does not obey Christ. And James starts his defense by saying, what use is it? What use is it? And it is clear James's point is there is no use. It is of no benefit, no positive bearing on one's spiritual life if they say simply, I believe, yet no works follow. Can that faith save him? 
You see, it is important to understand James as he refers to faith here in verse 14. He is not talking about faith in a way that there is the same starting point. He's not saying there is one faith that goes two different places. He's not saying there is faith and when faith has works, you are saved and those works have a place in saving you. Then there is the same kind of faith and when that faith doesn't have works, you aren't saved because you weren't good enough. That is not what James is saying. What he is saying is the true right faith produces life change and the wrong kind of faith, an imposter faith, it might even sound like the real faith, yet if it is a faith that isn't accompanied by works, that kind of faith does not save. The works aren't the deciding factor of salvation. Rather, they are the revealing indicator of the faith one claims. So when there are no works, it is revealing that this so-called faith is a false faith, or as James says in verse 20, a useless faith. Look at verse 14. James says, what use is it, my brother? And if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith, or better understood, can that kind of faith save him? And the answer is no, it can't. Because that kind of faith is an imposter faith. It is a useless kind of faith and will be of no benefit for the one who has that kind of faith on the day of judgment. Then in verse 15, James is going to illustrate how an inactive faith reveals which kind of faith that person actually has. Look at verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? This person is a brother or a sister in Christ, another believer in the assembly, and this person is in need. And when James says this person is without clothing, they do not have clothing enough to keep warm and food enough for their daily needs. They are in poverty. And this is expressed by their needs for further clothing and food. And if someone sees this, if a person in the church, a professing believer, sees the genuine need of a brother or sister in Christ and says, go and be filled, but doesn't intervene, and the response is one of goodwill without action, in fact, there is inaction. They know what the person needs and this one wishes them well but is unwilling to extend charity to them. James says, what use is that? Not only is it useless for the person in need, but James's point is that kind of faith is useless in regards to saving an individual. A faith that leads to no change of life an inactive faith, one that doesn't produce obedience to Christ, is useless. It's an imposter faith. Then James, in verse 16, asks the same question after this illustration that he did in the beginning of verse 14. What use is that? What is that good for? To see someone in need, to wish them well, but be unwilling to provide what would make them well. What good are those words that are void of standing behind what is actually said? What good is a profession of embracing of a so-called faith that doesn't actually lead to a change of life? This illustration that James appeals to demonstrates the same principle we see in 1 John 3.17. 
where John says, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? What good is a seed to a farmer if that seed doesn't produce a plant? Then verse 17 of James chapter 2, James says, Even so, or in the same way, faith, if it has no works, if your faith is an inactive faith, it is a dead faith. It is the wrong kind of faith. A faith that doesn't lead to a changed life, like a well-wisher who doesn't intervene, is useless. This kind of faith cannot save the person on the day of judgment. One theologian has said it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone. We are saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith that saves is never alone. It's never alone. James here defends the inseparable nature of faith and works by first demonstrating that an inactive faith reveals a dead faith. Next, under the category of the nature of dead faith, James defends the inseparable nature of faith and works with the defense that a confession of faith without action reveals a dead faith. Defense number two, a confession of faith without action reveals a dead faith. In verse 18, James is anticipating an objection here. This is a common practice when defending or making a specific point. He knows what his objectors will say, so he says it first in order to then address it. And so he asks, look at verse 18, but someone may well say. Now, before we jump into the actual content, I need to point something out and clarify something. The original Greek does not have quotations. So when we find a section with quotations in our English Bible, the translators have made a decision based on context as to where to put those quotations. So in our passage, James says, someone may well say, and then he goes on to tell us what someone might say. The translators have to make a decision about who is saying what. In the NASB, which is what I'm using this morning, they put the quotations starting at the word you. Do you see that in verse 18? And then this someone is saying something until the end of verse 18, if you're using the NASB. Most other versions in the quotations after works. So they start it. Quotation, you have faith and I have works, end quotation. So it would read this way. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works, end quote. Then James gives his response to the one who says, you have faith and I have works. This, I believe, based on the context of what is happening, is the correct way to understand this passage. It doesn't make sense for the person objecting to say, show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. The objector wouldn't say that because that is actually the point James is trying to make. So what's the point? Let's clean this up a little here. James, anticipating the objection, says, someone may say, someone in the church might present this case. You have faith and I have works. He's not saying 
Someone is telling him, you, James, have faith, and I, person in the church, have works. He's simply saying someone in the church might try to present a case that one has faith and another has works, and that this is okay. This is valid. Someone might present an argument where the essence of the argument is that faith and works can be separated. That's the point this hypothetical objector is trying to make. So James then drives home the point he's been making thus far that you cannot separate the two. Genuine saving faith leads to works. And in fact, the works are a demonstration of the genuineness of that faith. So what James does in response may seem confusing at first glance, but it makes perfect sense in light of the context of what is taking place. James responds to this hypothetical objector by asking him to do the impossible. The middle of verse 18, show me your faith without the works. And the point is, you can't. You can't do that. You can't show someone your faith without works. Faith is something that takes place in the heart. Faith is invisible. And in order for James to be convinced or to know the validity of that faith, there must be an outward manifestation of the declaration that I have faith. And James's argument isn't that God needs this demonstration in order to save someone. God knows the heart. Yet for the person who claims faith and for those who hear that claim, the way to know the validity of that claim of faith is by what the faith produces. A simple confession of faith without action, acting upon that confession by the lack of action actually demonstrates what kind of faith that is. So James calls for the objector to do the impossible and then gives the actual right way of demonstrating genuine faith when he says, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James calls for the objector to do the impossible and then gives the actual right way of demonstrating genuine saving faith. James says, works are the means by which I will demonstrate my faith. James again is not saying his works save him, but works give evidence of the faith that exists. <laughs> Imagine this. Two people are standing outside of the gym. One says, I have basketball skills. And the other says, I too have basketball skills. One says to the other, show me your skills without playing basketball and I'll show you my skills by playing basketball. It's impossible to put on display your basketball skills without engaging in athletic activity. Yet the, one, yet the other one will demonstrate the validity of his skills on the court. That's James' argument. That's James's argument here. It is impossible to demonstrate your faith without works, and works are the means of demonstrating the faith you possess. Therefore, confession of faith without action, demonstrating it, reveals again an imposter or a dead or a useless faith. Works don't earn salvation. Rather, works confirm salvation. Then James says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. 
This statement that God is one is very similar to the confession of faith Israel would make three times a day in response to Deuteronomy 6.4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. This is referred to as the Shema. Jews would recite this three times a day, and here James is writing to Jewish Christians who continue to make this confession. Yet what he is saying is, if your so-called faith doesn't go any further than simply a recognition about truth regarding God, if it doesn't go any further than a mental understanding, if it doesn't go any further than being willing to admit the realities of who God is, if you simply can make a proper confession, but it doesn't go any further than that, your faith is dead. This isn't, this isn't a saving kind of faith. This is actually a faith that the demons possess. James isn't candy coating this. If you are thinking you are doing something right only to have it compared to what the demons do, that should be a startling wake-up call. Look again at verse 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Demons believe God is one. They have mental understanding, but they do not serve God. They would confess true biblical theological realities about God and Jesus, but they do not serve him. The demons understand the reality of who God is. They even understand his power and judgment that is coming, and they shudder but they do not live for God. Likewise, these people confess the truth of Deuteronomy 6.4, but they do not obey the command in verse 5 to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And James's point here is that a mental understanding of true Christianity does not equal saving faith before the Lord. James is saying if you have an understanding of the gospel, of scriptural truth, but that understanding does not produce works that are pleasing to God, if that understanding doesn't produce obedience to God, that faith is no better than the faith of the demons. The issue James is addressing here isn't that someone has heard the wrong gospel. It's that their profession of faith in the right gospel did not produce God's intended result in them. They can confess the realities of the truth, but they are not living in accordance to the truth. They are content to declare God as their savior, but not live for him as their Lord. This is for one who is in the assembly, in the church. James in verse 20 says, are you willing to recognize, oh foolish fellow, to think that you can have a real faith in God and not humble yourself before him, to think that you can declare faith in God <clears throat> and not yield your life to him. It's foolishness. It's foolish. Do you not recognize at this point that faith without having works in accordance with salvation is a dead faith? And these verses aren't for the unbeliever outside of the church as a call to repentance. This passage is for the one who thinks themselves a believer for personal evaluation. 
we need to understand sanctification comes at different rates. Not everyone matures and grows at the same rate. This isn't for the one struggling and fighting in their obedience, but rather this is for the one that in your heart, there is unwillingness to submit to the Lord. This is a warning for the one who has areas in their life where they are not yielding to God. This is for one who likes the idea of salvation from eternal wrath, but still is not concerned with living for Jesus. This is for the person who can play church and act at times like a Christian and may even do Christian-y things, but in their heart of hearts, they have not submitted to Jesus as their Lord. Listen, this is tough. If you find yourself being convicted by the Holy Spirit that your profession of faith has been empty, that, that you are the fool in this passage, that, that you have played the Christian but haven't been one, it is a humbling thing to realize that. To actually come out and say that when you know in your heart of hearts that's the case, this is a hard thing, but I, w- I would plead with you, repent now. There's a time when it it will be too late. It is not too late today. The challenges before you are far less if you would come to Jesus now than the consequences that await you should you not repent. To continue in self-deception, to be one who on the last day believes you will be running into the arms of Christ only to hear from him, depart from me, I never knew you, would be far far worse than any of the shame that you would feel in confessing this. This, If this is you and you realize this and you would repent of this and confess this and share with it with the body of Christ, that would be a cause for rejoicing, not shame, not embarrassment. That's the warning for you this morning. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, many will say, Lord, Lord, Many will have lived their lives being self-deceived only to hear on that day, depart from me. This is a sobering warning for each of us. I imagine this passage is hard for many to hear. Some who have been fighting desperately in their repentance might hear these words and feel discouraged and deeper despair. Some might brush this off and think, I hope someone who needed to hear this did when they, in fact, are the ones who needed to hear the warning. Yet one of the tremendous blessings of being in a body of Christ is that we don't have to navigate these things alone. Whatever the Lord may be doing in your heart, include others in it. Talk to your small group leader. Share with any of the elders if you are struggling to determine if there are works in your life. Humbly ask in dialogue with one another. Invite others into your life to speak into this and listen well without a defensive heart or attitude. A confession of faith without works reveals dead faith. That is the second defense that is categorized as the nature of dead faith. Next, James gives two more defenses for the fact that genuine faith and works cannot be separated. And these can be categorized as examples of genuine saving faith. So we're going to look at the examples of genuine saving faith. This is defense number three and four. So next, defense number three, 
we see an example of genuine saving faith and Abraham's example of living faith. Abraham's example of living faith. That's in verses 21 through 24. James gives us two examples to demonstrate that faith and works are inseparable. And again, it is important to remember that James is not defending how one gets saved, but is defending the evidence that demonstrates one is saved. That's very important. As we look at these examples of living faith, we must remember the context that James is defending the evidences of one's actual salvation, not the means of how they obtained salvation. Now, with that in mind, look again at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? James says, Abraham, our forefather, the Jews, hero of their faith, was justified by works. Now, at first glance, this seems in contradiction to what the Apostle Paul says about Abraham in Romans and Galatians, where he says Abraham was justified not by works, but by faith alone. What's going on here? Well, it's important to remember words very regularly have different meanings and what determines that meaning is context. For example, if I said two sentences, the first sentence, the dog's bark was worse than its bite. And the second sentence was, the tree had a thick layer of bark. It is clear by the context of each sentence what I am saying and what the word bark means. Bark here is what is called a homonym. Same word, different meaning, understood by context. Justified can have different meanings. For example, justified can mean to declare righteous. To declare righteous. This is how Paul uses the term in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, where he is discussing the means of salvation, the means of sal salvation, declared righteous, how someone gets saved. We know that because of the context. Well, justified can also mean to prove or to show something to be true or right or genuine or to be vindicated. We know it from the context. So let's dig a little deeper at James's example of Abraham. You remember the story God told Abraham, who had no offspring in Genesis 12, that he would make him a great nation. Ten years later, Genesis 15, Abraham still has no children and says to God, what will you give me since I am childless? God reaffirms his promise and Abraham believed in the Lord and the Lord reckoned his faith as righteousness. It is here when Abraham was legally justified, declared righteous before God because of his faith. 14 years later, Isaac is born in chapter 21. And in chapter 22, it is now 30 years after Abraham was justified or declared to be righteous by faith alone. This is where God tests Abraham with the instruction to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham does everything God asks and is just about to kill his son and God intervenes and stops him. Abraham responds to God in obedience and this faith that he had 30 years prior was put on display when it would cost Abraham most and shown forth and vindicated by means of his obedience. It was proven outwardly to be true inwardly. 
His works of obedience demonstrated or vindicated or proved the reality of his salvation. Abraham was saved 30 years prior. He was declared righteous or justified in that sense at that point. Yet now 30 years later, his faith was vindicated or proven to be sincere through his obedience. And James explains his point in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. James's point that you cannot separate genuine saving faith from works is made. His faith was working with his works, and as a result of his works, faith was perfected. This word for perfected is the same we saw in James 1.4 in relation to trials, having the maturing effect or bringing your faith to its intended purpose. Remember, like a, a fruit that is ripe, it is mature, it's ready, it's perfect. Well, Abraham's faith was brought to maturity or to its intended purpose of obedience and submission. Verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called the friend of God. James now states that scripture was fulfilled. James is not saying prophecy was fulfilled, but rather the principle that Abraham's faith Abraham's justifying faith in chapter 15 in the sense of being declared righteous and saved found its full realization or was vindicated or put on display in Genesis 22 when he was willing to offer his son Isaac on the altar. Let me explain it this way. Genesis 15 says Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And when Abraham was obedient 30 years later in chapter 22, that scripture in Genesis 15 was brought to the fullness of what it expressed. It was fulfilled. Abraham's belief was shown true or fulfilled in his obedience. It was true in chapter 15. He was saved by faith. But that faith was brought to its intended purpose and fulfilled by his obedience. And then James says one of the sweetest statements that could ever be said about anyone. Look again at verse 23. And he, Abraham, was called a friend of God. Because of Abraham's unwavering obedience to God, he enjoyed intimate fellowship with God as his friend. Then James makes his point again that he has been making all along in verse 24. Look again, verse 24. He says, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In light of the context, it is now crystal clear that this example of Abraham proves that for all men, they are vindicated by works and not by a declaration of faith alone. And again, he's not referring to genuine faith when he says faith alone. He's referring to the imposter faith that he's been talking about and arguing against this whole section. Genuine faith can't be expressed outwardly to be true without works. You cannot separate genuine saving faith with works. Genuine saving faith will produce its intended result, which is obedience. Again, the quote I said previously. We are saved by faith alone, but the kind of faith that saves 
is never alone. So the first example of genuine saving faith was Abraham, and Abraham demonstrates that you cannot separate genuine saving faith from works. And next we see Rahab's example of living faith. This is defense number four, Rahab's example of living faith. And James really goes to the opposite ends of the spectrum with this next example. Abraham was the most esteemed Jewish father, and now Rahab was a pagan harlot. And the point is, and everyone in between, this is how it works. In verse 25, James says, in the same way, and what he's saying is, in the same way as Abraham was not Rahab the harlot also justified or vindicated when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Rahab was saved like all who are saved by faith alone. Yet her actions, her works of hiding the spies or the messengers and helping them escape at the risk of execution of her and her whole family demonstrated outwardly the reality of her faith. In the same way that the obedience or works of Abraham confirmed or vindicated Abraham's faith, Rahab's actions in Joshua 2 also justified, understood as James has been using the word, which is vindicated or put on display her faith. And then James ends his defense with this, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. This is the final summary. Faith without works is not true, genuine, saving faith. Genuine, saving faith cannot be separated from works. This passage calls for, it demands for self-examination. To look to ourselves. To evaluate where our hearts are actually before the living God. Is our faith real? Are we one who has simply declared with our mouth allegiance towards God, love for God, need for God, desire for God, and yet lives our life no different than if we didn't have God. Even in our participation in the body, is it for the glory of God or some other selfish reason? This passage also helps us see the great grace of God. You can't miss that here. You can't miss this morning, the tremendous grace of God. When he grants faith, faith that is from God, it comes with the power to obey him. And how sweet is that? This should be so comforting and so enabling in our battle against sin. We don't obey in our own strength, in our own merit. God's grace is what enables us to do what is right. He didn't merely save us by his grace and then leave us to our own strength to walk in obedience, to live for him. No, he, he saves us by his spirit and his spirit dwells in us. And now by the grace of God, through the strength of God, we can live for the glory of God. And when we think rightly about this, the, the commandments of God aren't burdensome. He's given us what we need to do them. And the commandments of God are only for our good and for his glory that he would be magnified and and, and that we would do what is right before him. 
That is a gift of God. That is the kindness of God. That he would care for us in such a way that he would not leave us to ourselves. God's great grace has the power to save us from sin, free us from sin, and enable us to stand against sin in obedience. There is no God like this God. And if, if you are in the church, a confessing, professing believer, there is hope for you. And whatever, whatever sin you are struggling in, there is a confidence for you in God, in his power and strength to clothe you with what you need to be pleasing to him. And if you are not in Christ, if you do not know Jesus as your savior, you must hear what is being laid before you this morning. There is a gracious, loving, powerful, righteous God who offers to you this day salvation. Salvation from sin, from the bondage of sin, from the punishment of sin, from the power of sin, all of those things. He offers you forgiveness in him. If you would but repent and believe in Christ as the only means of salvation, for your sin. And if you would do that, you, like Abraham was in chapter 15 of Genesis, can be justified this very moment, declared righteous, seen as if you have the righteousness of Christ upon yourself, given that righteousness upon yourself. What a gift. What a kindness of the Lord. I would plead with you, repent. And for all who have or would, let us now pray and rejoice with thanksgiving in the great grace of our Savior. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves in our salvation. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves in our lives of faith. You have given us all that, I, that we need. So Lord, help us to walk in that. Help us to see what you have done in us. I pray that our faith would be genuine, that it would demonstrate itself to be real faith as we walk, as we walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Give us joy in our relationship with you. Give us vigor in our pursuit of holiness. Give us hope in our struggle with sin. Help us to love Jesus more so that on that last day, we would indeed run to Christ and experience his embrace as a child of the living God. We ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.